Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast where we talk big picture, where we talk different ways of seeing the world, where I sit down with all sorts of people like environmentalists, thought leaders, public figures, and in today's case, one of the most successful inventors in the world. I'm sure you've heard of his product, and if you haven't, prepare to be wowed. But first, I would like to acknowledge that we gathered and recorded this conversation on Bundjalung country on a Rockwell land, on land that my guest has been living on for quite some time at his home, and is very, very special to him. You'll hear the story, and you will hear why. And it's really important to talk about and acknowledge and care for land and country and respect it in this deep way to develop a deep relationship with country which my guest most certainly has he is one of the most successful inventors in the world and still holds the record for the most successful crowdfunding campaign ever with his invention the flow hive in this conversation we talk about a whole range of things we start out talking about the importance of awe That's A-W-E, this incredible emotion that connects us to the world around us. We talk about this unbelievable life of bees. Honestly, it's like a David Attenborough documentary listening to this guy talk about the world of bees. You will be fascinated. He shares how bees are this window or doorway to the world because they connect us to the food and the natural world around us, but they're more than that. They're also like the canary in the coal mine because, as we talk about, there are so many issues facing bees. Things like colony collapse disorder, varroa mites, mass industrial agriculture, things that are largely based on our industrial human processes. So we go into the details about how we're weakening bees with insecticides, how we're taking them all over the world and removing them from natural habitats, how we're exposing them to mass monocropped environments like massive canola fields and the impacts that that has. So not only are bees a window or doorway to the natural world around us, but they're also a window or doorway to our destruction of the natural world around us. We talk a lot about this. We also talk about his early days inventing the flow hive with his father. We talk about the details of how he launched the most successful crowdfunding campaign ever and how that really kickstarted the crowdfunding concept into the mainstream. And you'll just hear, you'll hear straight away that he is not your everyday business leader. He's just, he's just different. He's calm and considered, but at the same time, he's quite eccentric and unusual and a bit weird in the best possible way, and you're just going to love him. So please enjoy this conversation with the co-inventor of the Flow Hive, Cedar Anderson. Straight in. Cedar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Mate, thank you for having me. We're here in your we're here in your shed. There's some incredible things just littering the environment, the space at the moment. I can tell that your life as an inventor 
certainly seems to continue to be part of your life. I love it. I love looking around the space here and seeing just broken down flow hives and laser printers and a guitar that you made out of flow hive frames. Like, it's awesome. It's definitely my happy place being in the workshop tinkering with things and, and it's a bit of a dream to be able to tool up and I'm yet to, to get all the tools I want, of course, but um, starting to work on it with this little workshop here. It's mm. cool. Love it. It's beautiful. So we were talking just before I hit record about the overview effect, which is really the, I guess, the inspiration behind the show. It's the, the catalyst for me to sit down and have conversations with people like you. And so I'd love to start there and ask you if you've had a moment or a story or an experience in your life that has shaped your view of the world in a similar way that those astronauts when they go to space and see the world and feel a connection to this planet and they come back to earth kind of connected and wanted and motivated to wanting to do something for the planet have you had anything in your life that's really shaped and altered your view of the world i think there's been lots of moments and I can kind of relate to that feeling. I mean, you don't know till you go out there and look back at the earth, I guess, and imagining this pristine ball, perhaps the only life-giving place that we know of out there in, in a void of space. And one story that springs to mind comes from paragliding, and I got right into paragliding. It's such a wonderful piece of freedom and um, one day I was taking off from a cliff edge up on a mountain in this local area. Someone was, was building a house there and there was a little bit of room for me just to set up my paraglider, which consists of just fabric and coloured strings and your harness, right? And pull it up in the slightest little breeze and run off this cliff. And then I'm gliding down in the, the, the beauty of the valley and the forest below and people's little yards and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not, I'm not going up, I'm going down in this situation. I got right down, almost landing in somebody's backyard and just got this little bubble of air, this little rising piece of air and I turned back for it, got up another couple of metres and I turned back for it and turned back for it and slowly it grew into a rising column and then I was circling like the eagles do up past this cliff face and as it went higher and higher above the point of where I took off it started getting stronger and stronger and I'm circling and circling and it's a bit like a meditation when you're trying to follow a thermal and as it gets stronger when you fall out of the edge of it it's it's a bit like riding a rodeo as the paraglider dives forward and you fall and then you turn back for it and you hit it and it hoist you back up again into that rising column and if you can stay in the moment then you can stay tuned in with that rising column of air and soon enough you're up with the clouds and this day was spectacular with with bubbly white clouds just forming to the east and to the west and I'm actually up between them and I look down and there's some cloud forming underneath me the sun's overhead, the shadow of the paraglider and me is on the cloud and there's a rainbow full circle around that. <laughs> and I'm looking down beyond that and there's this beautiful forested mountain range 
and these belly rolls of laughter just start coming out. It's like, <laughs> this is unbelievable. And it's one of those moments that I've had many times in my life where you look around and go, planet Earth, mm. what an incredible place. Mm. And then you get, you get struck with the, the fragility and the very fine balance that it takes to keep all of the systems in play. Mm. And I guess that's perhaps part of what the astronauts experience when they're looking back at Earth and looking at this precious, fragile world that we are made of. Yeah, I, I definitely think that is what they're describing when they experience that. And I've heard astronauts talk about it. And I've heard other even environmentalists and environmental researchers talk about the emotion that is really valuable in connecting people with the world and wanting to do the right thing is awe. They talk about awe and the importance of awe. And when you can, I guess that's awe-inspiring, awesome, you know, those when we can have those moments that connect us with awe, then we can start to see the world in this really special way. And that can, I guess, lead us to wanting to have a positive impact. And I think that, I think that there's something about bees that do that too, right? There's something, <laughs> something about bees that people when they see the world through what a bee is doing, um, connecting with nature and pollinating and creating this honey, I think they can, they're tapping into that feeling of awe as well. And I, I want to talk to you about, I want to talk to you about flow hive and that journey, but I kind of want to start as well by going, what is it about bees that, how is it that they're able to open up that kind of connection to nature? And you know, what, what role do they play in our world? How important are they in our lives? I think a doorway is a pretty good way to describe it. And we reflect a lot on that, often calling it a window. Because what happens is when people become new beekeepers, often there's this paradigm shift where they're seeing the world through a different kind of lens. They're now looking at it in, oh, what's good for my bees? And of course, it's kind of metaphorically then what's good for the whole interconnectedness of life that we all completely depend on. So they're now looking out at the trees and going, oh, I didn't even really notice that trees flowered. Mm. Oh, I didn't really notice that we need those flowers consistently and there's not only our, the European honeybees that make all of this beautiful honey, there's all these other cool bees. Oh, look at these ones, there's these ones with blue stripes. Mm -hmm. And it goes on and on and there's this opening of the interconnectedness world that we all depend on. And so now when we post out our hives, even though we didn't start off with this concept, we started off going, we want to make this invention to solve problems that I was having at home. And then quite quickly we got feedback from the audience that it was so inspiring that it was causing this kind of paradigm shift and people were going around and converting the whole block to be an insecticide-free zone and we're going, <laughs> wow, this is amazing. Yep. At growing up an environmentalist myself, I suddenly realised 
the amazing thing we had which was a community of like-minded people all around the world starting to stick up for the bees which is really sticking up for life itself right Mm, the bees are that you're right they're that doorway they're that window they're that representation of broader i guess connection to nature because the bees are the conduits between our food and pollen and the trees and plant life and the other thing that's fascinating i don't know a lot about bees but i have heard stories over the years of like that how organized and structured they are in their colonies like they've got worker bees and i've even heard stories about you know worker bees going out and i don't know tell me if this is true this might be a complete fabrication but they'll go out and kind of measure like scout and like measure a space maybe for a new hive and then go back and then another bee will come out and almost like check those measurements is that is that true and and what what roles do worker bees play and then you've got the queen bees and can you just give me a bit of an understanding into how bee society operates bees are incredibly <laughs> fascinating right yeah and they're, they're one of the most studied insects in the world and still the more we learn the more we realize there is to learn more questions open up all the time so yes they do when they do this process of finding a new home let's say the bees decide to divide that's their natural thing they they go to swarm it's called where half the bees will kick out the old queen and they'll find a new home but what they do is land temporarily on a branch somewhere typically and then scout bees will go off from that swarm ball measuring cavities in trees uh, mailboxes garbage bins whatever and then those bees fly back and they do a dance and somehow in that busy ball of bees that dance is decoded in a way just and they need uh it, it becomes a bit democratic they need about 15 scout bees to say yes this is the place to go and then the whole swarm ball takes to the sky again and then you've got this big mass of bees in the sky which is an incredible experience to watch and the scouts start doing loops through that swarm ball to guide them and that swarm slowly picks up speed with those scouts driving them along towards this new location to call home wow and if you're quick enough you can actually intercept that and say hey here's a really neat home in my box give the branches shake they fall in and go yeah this is pretty good it measures <laughs> up perfectly wow that's amazing and you know the other thing that that really trips me out and again i don't know a lot about bees but and maybe you can elaborate on this but so you got the queen bee and then if the queen bee dies or if there's a new colony that starts one of the existing bees just transforms into the new queen no no so in a hive you've got mainly worker bees Mm -hmm. which are all identical genetics to the queen but when those worker bees are uh, in their first 11 days of their life after hatching out of an egg so they're a grub if they're fed plant proteins on about day three through epigenetics they become a worker if they're not 
fed plant proteins being pollen. And they're only fed on royal jelly, which is an excretion from the, the bees themselves. Then they'll turn into a queen. So that way the bees can make a queen if they've got an egg to start from. Whoa. And what happens is instead of being a worker bee that might last for four to six weeks foraging, then if it's a queen, it'll last for up to six years, potentially laying a couple of thousand eggs a day. She's supersized, she's got bigger legs, and you go, wow, that's all from just a change in the mm. diet. Whoa. That's amazing. And then you've got the drones, right, which are the male bees. And they don't do a whole lot in the hive that we know of. We're still learning about them. But basically, a bunch of them leave each day and they go to a drone congregation area. It's a bit bit like a the pub, right? All the males go down the pub <laughs> and they wait for a queen to fly by. So you've got all these genetics from all of these hives all meeting and hanging out. And then a young virgin queen will only mate in the first week of her life. She'll take off, she'll fly past a drone congregation area and then the chase is on. You've got this <laughs> insane aerial mating procedure where the first drone comes in and actually gets his genitals ripped off and dies. The second one comes in and digs those genitals out and so on. And she might mate with up to 30 and... Returning home has enough sperm for six years of laying. What? I didn't know that. Oh, my. See, this is why bees are amazing. And this is the more we find out about them, the more we get this awe with nature and this connection to nature as a whole. You know, the the thing that really amazes me is that so that that, that bee, that grub or that egg, can go both ways to a queen or to a worker bee depending on what it's fed but that biology is there and it's just triggered through certain actions it's kind of like with um gorillas you know how you got like the silverback gorilla is the alpha male and then if he gets challenged and defeated by another male then the new male grows the silver fur oh wow yeah and and that becomes the alpha male so it's like that that ability is there is dormant in nature in biology it just needs something to trigger it which then makes lend me to the thought of well we're pretty close to gorillas you know so what's i don't know lying dormant in our biology i, don't oh, know. I have seen a few silver hairs on people's back <laughs> getting around so yeah, yeah the alphas yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so bees are amazing bees are inspire this awe and connection to nature but life's not so easy always being a bee right bees are from what i understand bees face challenges around the world is it true that bee populations are declining and what and why is that and is it due to human influence absolutely due to human influence now it's a bit complicated right because humans have dragged the honeybee which is Apis mellifera, all around the world, wherever they go, because they're an incredible pollinator. A single hive can visit 50 million flowers a day. There is no other pollinator on the planet that can do that. So they're important to us. They're important to the, to the food production that we need. And the 
I guess, the, the threats that are coming in, and we're seeing it particularly in places that are heavily agricultural, like the United States, where you've got the colony collapse disorder. And there's a whole lot of things that are said to be causing that. One of them, which is a bit of a no-brainer, is the insecticide pesticide use Mm. a billion liters of pesticide gets sprayed on our earth's surface every year wow and if you're spraying insecticides particularly on flowers that bees are going to it's no wonder you're having problems but it gets a bit worse than that where there's been insecticides developed these ones are called neonicotinoids which basically means a synthetic nicotine-like product really affects insects and you don't even need to spray it on the trees you can put it in the ground the trees suck it up and a small amount appears in the sap and in the Mm. nectar now when they first brought out that they thought oh great we don't need to spray on flowers this is better for the bees blah blah right but that's said to be one of the causes of colony collapse because you've got this neurotoxin that the bees are sucking up and they can't remember their way home wow so it's horrible right and that's actually everywhere like you can go down to the local shop and buy that and there's it's widely used around the world now and there's big protests about it and all of that Mm. then you've got the Things like uh, pests and disease issues. So you've already weakened them with all this insecticide. Then you go and humans drag bees around everywhere, spreading disease everywhere because they're taking them everywhere, right? And mites is one of those. Varroa mites, we're lucky not to have it in this continent in Australia, but every other continent has these mites. Imagine it's a bit like something the size of a rabbit sucking on your neck. Mm. And... It's not actually the weight of it or the uh, or that it's stealing some of your blood. It's the diseases it brings with it that cause the problems. Mm-hmm. So that's a big effect. And then you've got the monofloral issues where bees, just like us, need a balanced diet. Nectar is their carbohydrate. Pollen is their protein. Now, if we only ate one source of protein, we'd get sick. Mm. It's the same for bees. So if all they've got is canola, then they're going to get sick. So when you've got this system in place with thousands of hives being chucked around to massive monofloral farming, you just don't have enough uh, range of a diet to keep your bees healthy either Mm. so it's it's part of the the big system and the big learnings of our time is to work out how to dial back to a healthy ecosystem in order to keep it going Mm. and what about the um i guess the over industrialization of the honey industry as well you know uh, have we seen um I guess mass scale honey production treating bees like a, a a utility to be extracted. Yeah, I mean 
it's the world needs beekeepers, right? Mm. And we need enough hives, like to pollinate the almonds. If we want to keep almonds going, mm. we need a lot of hives in those almond orchards. Mm. So we need those beekeepers. But certainly, there's a lot to be changed in the way that mass scale beekeeping gets done, and there's lots of films about it and so on, showing the problems that they're facing uh, the, the mass uh, feeding antibiotics to bees and so on mm. to to mask the symptoms of of uh foul brood disease and so on like it, it gets pretty um hideous but one of the problems also is the diversity of genetics so if you if you're breeding queens artificially inseminating um not allowing the bees to do their natural process of evolution, then problems creep in as well because that becomes susceptible to certain environmental factors, certain diseases and so on. Mm. So the whole thing gets incredibly complicated quite quickly. And if we certainly need genetic diversity, we need, uh, we need diversity of pollen sources, we need diversity of how we keep bees and how we do things in order for the system to have enough robustness to survive. Mm. Yeah, I guess just like bees are, can be a window to or a doorway to a connection with nature, they can also be a window or a doorway to our destruction to nature as well, right? It sounds like they're one of the, one of the species on the front line that's really copping the brunt of our destructive ways well it's like everything right so a small scale farmer is usually quite in contact with the animals they're farming or whatever they're farming and it's often quite a beautiful relationship and they care deeply Mm. and then the bigger you go the less that connection is possible so it, it's not just across um, one industry, of course. No, no matter what it is, it tends to head in a direction of disconnect. Mm. And so, were in light of all these challenges, what, what was that? What was your motivation to create the Flow Hive? Then was it was it based on these challenges, or was it something else? So. For me, it was simply an idea to solve a problem that I was having. And that was harvesting honey at home, selling buckets to the local shop. I was running about 40 hives. And it was an incredible process, right? You've got to get in your bee suit. You've got to get out your smoker. You've got to pull the hives apart. You've got to brush off all the bees. Mm. And they get upset in the process and you squash a bunch. It's really hard not to. And then you take those frames to a processing shed if you're a bit bigger you might use a leaf blower to blow all the bees off you've got those frames you get a decapping knife you cut the wax capping off the frames then you put those frames into this big centrifuge machine which is a like a big washing machine spinner kind of thing and you 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 crank that up and the honey all flies out to the edge and then you've got to uh sieve that basically sieve out all the wax and bee bits and so on to get to a product that then can be jarred up and sold 
And then if that's not enough sticky, messy hard work, you've got to go back to the hives again and try and remember which frames went in which hive so you don't start (laughs) spreading pathogens from one hive to the next. And you kind of drop off that bucket of honey at the local shop and go, oh, I don't even want to give it to them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So much effort went in, right? And from that experience came, there has to be a better way. Can't we just tap the honey off Mm. while the bees are going about their business so the idea was to come up with an invention to make it easier and more gentle for the bees Mm -hmm. it wasn't about inspiring a new way of beekeepers a a new wave of beekeepers all around the world to help help look after our planet that came Mm. from the community that was attracted and inspired when we when we launched on crowdfunding wow and how how long did it take you? I mean, did you kind of look at that first hive and go, oh, yeah, I reckon we can tap that and just have a bit of a tinker? How long did that process take to figure it out? So it was a, uh, it was a long process, right, because you'd put a little invention concept into the hive and it would be three months, four months, six months before you get some feedback from the bees saying, hmm, they weren't really interested in it try something else and you had to get both things the bees liking it and it actually being useful Mm. so that took a decade and my father my father joined in and together we were making prototypes putting them in hives making prototypes testing bouncing off off each other coming up with ideas and eventually we cracked it it took a decade took a decade but <laughs> i didn't realize it took that long that's amazing it, it wasn't full time right because mm. it can't be you've got to test something and wait yeah meanwhile i'm off paragliding and working for greenpeace paragliding in, in various different countries around the world so you're trying to okay so you're 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 trying you've got this idea for an invention you're trying to tinker it away with it you're also living your normal life your life (laughs) your non-bee life environmental activism i also understand you were where we are now you were living on this property and you'd been here for a long time right you were telling me before we hit record and as you got closer and closer to the launch of the flow hive the intensity around your living situation dialed right up can you talk a little bit about that oh that was a pressure cooker and i don't know sometimes it takes a baby on the way to really get you into action. Mm. And we had this invention on the boil. My other half is pregnant with our first child. And our landlord said, oh, we're putting the place on the market. We're like, no, 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 you're not. We're having a baby. We've planted our fruit trees. We're staying here. And we've got this invention (laughs) <laughs> and they're like, ah, oh, right, well, show us your invention. And we showed them the invention and they went, wow, that's pretty good, but I'm sorry, we're still going to sell the place. And we lived on a shoestring, right? Mm. Paid $100 a week rent for 15 years and we collected things from beside the road to keep our life going and lived on whatever money we could scrape together from teaching a bit of paragliding and so on. And it wasn't important to us to have funds to do stuff. It was a life that was very free-flowing in a way. And all of a sudden, 
we need to buy the place so it's not sold out of underneath our feet. So it was a massive um, kickstart. So we got our invention. We put it on crowdfunding. My sister had been helping put together a great video. She'd been studying in film school and roped in another couple of mates as well who were talented in the, in the IT space. And away we went. So your, your landlord's looking to sell your home with a baby on the way from under your feet. You've got this invention you've been working on for 10 years and you kind of go, oh, okay, we're ready to put it online. And that was the moment of truth. And then what happened? So what happened next was, was euphoric, really, especially because I'd been up all night trying to finish the page. I hadn't actually slept at all. And there was this, we, we were organised enough to get the ABC to film us, press go on the, on the launch day. So there, there I was in an interview pretending to press go on the phone while really my, my, my team at home were, were starting up the crowdfunding campaign. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm partway through that interview and there's somebody jumping around in the back, you've hit your target of $70,000, $70, you've hit your char- target. Uh, and I went, what? And just walked off the interview. <laughs> And then it was on. It was like a freight train from there. It's like, oh, we need more flow hives. We've sold out of the ones we put on there. And so on and so on. So we get two hours later, we hit a million dollars, which was a record wow. for the fastest ever crowdfunding campaign in the world, right? Wow. And, and then it just went on and on and on, breaking records. The 12 weeks later, we're at 12.2 million US dollars of pre orders of our flow hives. And we didn't even have a, a manufacturer lined up yet. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So it was this rocket ship start from quite a free-flowing world into, all right, son, (laughs) get it together now. And did you go from um, (laughs) overwhelming euphoria, yeah, we've done it, and then as it kept growing to, oh, shit, (laughs) now what do we have to do? How did you then bridge that gap to create an entire supply chain to service the world with flow hives? It was such an interesting experience. I had, um, I had uh, some of my family saying, shut it down, turn it off, we've got enough to make. And I'm like, oh, hang on a second, isn't this what we dreamt of? Mm. Isn't this what we were trying to make happen? And <laughs> no, let's keep this thing going, we'll work it out somehow. And I'm starting to dial friends in the industry and they're saying, I've never seen anybody dial up manufacturing uh, you know, quicker than six months. And I'm like, what? Ah, we can do that, whatever. And we did. You know, we found manufacturers here in Australia and we got a 24-7 production line going in Brisbane, which is amazing. I've never really heard of that before. And we we jumped on and and got more tooling happen and we used creative thought on how to make things go faster with crazy big dehumidifying tents we put over injection moulding machines and we got it all happening. And at the same time, we got manufacturing going in the USA because that was the, the uh, big market over there for us. And then we had this crazy system with packages from here in the US that had to come together for people and a, a database of 25,000 orders that you didn't even know what people had ordered. <laughs> it was this insane kind of mix-up. So we had a team of 40 basically grow overnight 
and everybody was pitching in, just getting stuff done, just chipping off tasks, just doing whatever. And the whole thing is working. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. Nobody's even got a job title. They're just doing stuff and it's working. I love this. And that was the start of how we got going. And, and here we are six years later. That was your swarm. Yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was the swarm effect. Yeah. And so six years later, what's what's happening with Flowhive today? So we're we're going along great. It, it's it's amazing now. We're up to eighty thousand or so uh, customers out there from one hundred and thirty different countries, and this global audience is really something that keeps us going. It's like, wow, somehow here we are on all the different sides of the planet each week. I sit there answering questions live, tuning in with the audience, finding out what's, what issues they're having, helping them, finding out you know, what, they, what they're like and don't like and all the stories of them harvesting honey and enjoying looking after their bees and so on. So it's this amazing piece of um, worldwide engagement that seems to cross political lines, it seems to cross borders like our audience you typically think might be, you know, self-sustainers and and um, things like that. But it's across the board. It's right-wing, it's left-wing, it's the shooters' party, it's the greenies, it's mm. the uh, mums and dads, it's the, it's the old, it's the young. And it's this amazing thing to have this community of such a spread and everyone agrees we need to save the bees mm-hmm. and that's what we need to talk about yeah i love it yeah it's not just about how do we give honey how do we deliver honey to the world because then you would have created the honey business you know and you would have probably scaled up some massive honey manufacturing plant and just sold it as a product what it is about is actually how do we decentralize the the honey system but more than that how do we create the the avenue for people to connect with bees and therefore nature themselves and is that what you've found more and more as you've gone on this journey i think humans yearn for this connection right we've we've come from the garden and we are a part of the garden but we're more disconnected than ever Mm. so if we can provide ways in this crazy world to throw people a lifeline back to that space, they're all for it. So there's this kind of synergy that happens where people want to be making their own produce at home. They want to be producing food locally. And the Flow Hive allows you to do that, even on a balcony, even on a rooftop, even in the city. Mm. People are producing amazing honey. My sister kept hives on a balcony in Berlin and it's this incredible thing where you almost get more diversity of honey flavors in the city because of the things people plant and all of the amazing flowering species Mm. so that's super cool and then there's this concept that okay to harvest the honey you can just turn a handle and enjoy this process of watching it flow out with no machinery not even any human contact or anything right into the jar and it's perfect ready Mm. for the table so that really captures people captures the imagination and inspires many 
And of course, there's more to beekeeping than harvesting honey. So it's this whole world opens up about learning about the bees and about how do, how do we look after them? How do we make the environment better for them? Okay, we need to put away the sprays and get out the habitat. And that's the kind of uh, wonderful knock-on effect of, of inspiring new beekeepers all around the world. Mm, I love it. I love it. You're absolutely right. And I guess to to have been, think about those, I guess, 16 years ago, six years of Flow Hive, 10 years prior to that, with the idea to develop the Flow Hive, to stick with that idea for 10 years, you must have been incredibly driven or just incredibly naive <laughs> or incredibly optimistic. I mean, how did you, what, what, what made you stick with that? Like a lot of people would just go, oh, this is too hard. This is too hard. I guess I've grown up with a confidence and competence to really have a go and to believe that what I'm working on will work. And I imagine it's partly being wired very far down the optimistic spectrum and also blessed to grow up on a community where there was lots of people to learn from and having having a father that had lots of skills in terms of practical, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, you name it, building, and him being able to pass those skills on. And if we didn't have TV on the community, it was a, a life of exploration and creativity and in the garden, in the orchard, in the workshop, in making things, making do, a lot of that farm stuff where you make stuff from what you have. And so having the that kind of grounding and that, uh, I guess, competence, I was, I guess, crossed with a very uh, healthy amount of optimism. I never once thought that I wouldn't be able to do it. Mm. I just kept trying. So the failures weren't a fail. They were a learning. Mm-hmm. And that way we eventually got there. And my dad came up with great ideas which were transformative to, to what I was doing in the beginning. And we came up with a way that was very efficient to harvest the honey and very easy to do. So... Yeah, I guess optimism plays a huge part and also this kind of stubbornness played a part all the way through. Like when we were trying to bring this to market, we went to Inventor Help, we went to the guy who wrote the book on business, we went to this, went to that. And I was just like, ah, I think I want to do crowdfunding. So we went to the crowdfunding workshop and they actually had a look at our idea and went, no, nah, it won't work for you, crowdfunding's for widgets and gizmos. <laughs> and I walked out and went, ah, oh, stuff that, I'm going to do it anyway. So this kind of stubborn optimism, I would say, was a very healthy ingredient to get the invention off the ground. Mm. And is that the way you see the world more broadly as well? I mean, we talked before about all these environmental crises that the bees face through us. And we see doom and gloom in the media all the time, particularly in the environmental movement. So do you carry that with you through your life? Absolutely. So where my head goes 
is painting a positive picture, usually about the future. That's my happy place. That's what I do all day. And it was a surprise to me to work out that that's unusual. And I think that uh, that plays a big part to what I do in the world. It plays a big part to inventing and success, I guess. Um, Because without the optimism, I would have never believed I would get there. I would never believe I could make it work. I wouldn't have believed. And that would have been a showstopper. And being a bit sensitive too, I kept things to myself because I didn't want other people's ideas of, I guess, pessimism on my project. Mm. So I really kept it close. I wanted to just stay with what uh, I had in mind. And I guess that extends beyond that to an optimistic view of the future as well. And while we have doom and gloom every day, I don't see it that way. I guess I see it from a different perspective. And yes, there's plenty to do, but I don't see that it's this gloomy end of the world kind of future. I see that humans are incredibly clever, incredibly stupid, and (laughs) with how they treat their nest, right? Mm. So there's lots to do, but it's not from a place of fear that the world's going to end. It's from a place of well, why we're here on this little blue planet in the corner of the universe, perhaps the only place that life exists, why not spend our time helping life around us, helping the species, helping the animals, helping the plants? So we use this opportunity of a big community all around the world to, to set projects to life and with creative thought, we can come up with a, a plan like one recently is called thebeekeeper.org where we teach beekeeping and we've got experts from around the world contributing to that. And 50% of those profits are donated to habitat regeneration and protection. And we came up with this plan. And now, after running it for just over a year, we've got enough funds to plant a million trees this year Mm. across USA, Australia and the rest of the world. And that's important for drawdown of carbon. That's important for habitat. That's important for all of the bee species, not only the European honeybee, but all of the matrix of life that we all depend on. So that feels great to be able to contribute and it's something that keeps us going in the morning. Otherwise, I might as well go drifting across the sky in my paraglider again (laughs) i love it and do you know it just what's also incredible is how the power of an idea one idea how can i harvest this honey in an easier way has led to all of these things the awakening or reconnection to nature of people or tens of thousand people all around the world the planting of over a million trees, which and this ripple effect that one idea paired with stubborn optimism, as you say, I think the stubborn is really important. I think a lot of people have pessimism, but some people even that have optimism don't have the stubbornness to stick with it either. 
So that one idea paired with the stubborn optimism to just stick with it has just created so, so much. Like everything around around here in your home, with your family, your staff, your t- like your team, your customers. That The ripple effect that that has is amazing. It's incredible. Do you ever reflect on that? Absolutely. <laughs> and we started to build it into our company as the flow-on effect and the swarm effect, yes. right? Yes. And for us, it's important that we build a brand that has the environmental views and values that we hold built so deeply into it that when we're dead and gone, that brand can go on doing good things because it's worthless without those environmental views mm. and values. Love it. Cedar, it's, a, it's an incredible story. It's an incredible journey that you're, you have been on and continue to be on. Um, and I, I just want to say thanks for all the stubborn optimistic work that you've done over the years but thanks for your time today it was a great chat thanks for having me on your show pleasure